this would be the ideal basis for an interagency unified command. And civil affairs would be the backbone of that. And we structured around that. It would have componency from other agencies of government like State Department, USAID, and others. It would help tremendously, I can tell you from a combatant commander's point of view, in planning, because none of those other agencies plan at all. They claim to, but they don't. I look at my deliberate war plans, and I don't see a State Department or AID or other component uh, about how we're going to manage things during the operations and in the later phases how we're going to do the transitioning. Hi, and welcome to the One Day Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by General Anthony Zinni. General Zinni was born in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania in 1943 and raised in the Philadelphia area. He attended Saints Cosmos and Damien Grade School and St. Matthews High School in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. He currently resides in Williamsburg, Virginia. His military, diplomatic, business, and academic career has taken him to over 100 countries. General Zinni joined the Marine Corps' Platoon Leader Class Program in 1961 and was commissioned an Infantry Second Lieutenant in 1965 upon graduation from Villanova University. He held numerous command and staff assignments that include platoon, company, battalion, regimental, Marine Expeditionary Unit, and Marine Expeditionary Force Command. His staff assignments include service and operations, training, special operations, counterterrorism, and manpower billets. He has been a tactics and operations instructor at several Marine Corps schools and was selected as a fellow on the Chief of Naval Operations Strategic Studies Group. General Zinni's joint assignments include command of a joint task force and a unified command. He has also held several joint and combined staff billets at joint task force and unified command levels. His military experience includes deployments to the Mediterranean, the Caribbean, the Western Pacific, Northern Europe, and Korea. He has also served tours of duty in Okinawa and Germany. His operational experiences include two tours in Vietnam where he was severely wounded, emergency relief and security operations in the Philippines, Operation Provide Comfort in Turkey and Northern Iraq, Operation Provide Hope in the former Soviet Union, Operations Restore Hope, Continue Hope, and United Shield in Somalia, Operations Resolute Response and Noble Response in Kenya, Operations Desert Thunder, Desert Fox, Desert Viper, Desert Spring, Southern Watch, and Maritime Intercept Operations in Iraq and the Persian Gulf, and Operation Infinite Reach against terrorist targets in the Central Region. He was involved in the planning and execution of Operation Proven Force and Operation Patriot Defender during the Gulf War and non-combatant evacuation operations in Liberia, Zaire, Sierra Leone, and Eritrea. He has attended numerous military schools and courses, including the Army Special Warfare School, the Marine Corps Amphibious Warfare School, the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, and the National War College. General Zinni retired from the military in 2000 after commanding U.S. Central Command. General Zinni, welcome to the One CA podcast. Thanks, John. Good to be with you. Thank you very much. And uh, going through the, the long list of operations makes me wonder who comes up with the names and how they do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you know how that works? Yeah. Well, they're 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 provided uh, by Department of Defense. It has to be approved by the Secretary. Uh, you know, they used to just have lists of uh, two names that you put together. And I think when General Powell was chairman. He didn't like some of the combinations that were coming up, so uh, they were they changed over to making them uh, a, a little more uh, 
coherent and, and reflective of what you're trying to do, like provide comfort or provide hope and those sorts of things. So uh, we ended up with uh, these kinds of uh, uh, more meaningful phrases rather than just uh, two words off a list. Yeah. I think uh, the troops got a kick out of all the provides, you know, provide hope, provide. Right. Uh, yeah. I think one of them, the troops wanted to name abandon hope and the last one is <laughs> And I would think the foxes and the vipers and the springs, all the animals yeah. you can put on a coin, would work out well, too. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So we're here today to talk about, you know, your connection with civil affairs, what you've learned throughout your career, and give some guidance to the listeners about where you see civil affairs as a joint force, Army, Marine Corps, where it may be heading, and as a capability to support of the U.S. government interests. So let me start by asking you, during your time in uniform, when did you first come across the Civil Affairs Unit? Well, you know, all throughout my career, I was certainly aware of Civil Affairs, mostly from my schooling, and professional military schooling, uh, but I didn't have any direct involvement until I was the Deputy J3 at European Command, and we were tasked to uh, put together the plan for provide comfort to work with the Kurds in northern Iraq. Uh, and it was a very unusual mission for us, and uh, we were trying to figure it out. You know, it wasn't really a combat mission. There were security issues, and certainly there were there were a few firefights. But uh, we really were looking at this tremendous humanitarian situation, you know, in a hostile environment, uh, and a lot of agencies uh, that were going to show up, and non-governmental organizations, and the United Nations, other uh, international organizations and private volunteer organizations are trying to figure how this would all work. And that's the first time I really sat down with uh, two civil affairs uh, uh, officers that were planners on our staff uh, that, that I got to know very well, uh, and Captains uh, Elmo and Hess, who taught me a lot about what civil affairs could contribute. And I think for the, the J3 and our, our deputy commander uh, at the time, we all were, were kind of saying, you know, we just didn't have this kind of uh, understanding of what civil affairs could do. And I think one of the reasons why the operation was such a success is because uh, the civil affairs uh, participation in there, eventually we had a brigadier general civil affairs officer because what we found what I would say was the main effort eventually became that kind of coordination and connectivity with uh, not only the, the, the people that were traumatized were dealing with in their leadership, but uh, with all these other civilian, governmental, and non-governmental uh, and volunteer organizations. And, and so that was an eye-opener, and I, I took that with me to Somalia. So when I went to Somalia as the J3 for the first task force, and then you know, back again as uh, as, as an advisor with uh, Ambassador Oakley, the second tour, then the third tour, commanding the the, the forces that covered the withdrawal. The civil affairs played a great deal uh, in the planning that we had done, and my awareness of what they did, you know, really had increased through that whole experience. And so when I became a CENTCOM commander, I just saw this tremendous value, not only in, in, in the operational context, but I saw the potential for civil affairs taking a more strategic role, and I know we'll talk about that. Is that so it sounds like the planning aspect of this is, is a, a key point, uh, turning point, potentially positive way for CA forces to support their units and you can't wait for you to be on the ground and hope, oh, the CA team's right over there. 
of course we know what they do, and that, that rarely happens. It's kind of like getting an infantry commander to realize, well, logistics are key to your success overall, just as these other enablers like psychological operations or civil affairs may be, but that needs to start well in advance before you hit the ground and planning the operation. Does that happen routinely? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I think in a lot of cases, uh, planners are not as uh, aware of what civil affairs can do and bring uh, as, as maybe we should be, you know, especially when we're thinking in terms of, well, it's a combat operation. But in this day and age, you know, the, the, the kinds of environments we find ourselves in, it, it's combat rolled into all sorts of uh, other kinds of missions. And I think, you know, up until the 1990s, probably everybody thought of civil affairs as, as an organization that came in, basically dealt with keeping civilians out of the way and tending to their needs. And then, and more in a support role, I think in the 1990s began to see it was not only a major contributor, but like I said, at times it should be, it could be the main effort. Certainly as you phased into maybe the, the, the drawing down of, of combat operations and now the more reconstruction efforts and stabilization efforts, uh, but still requiring a military involvement. This is the ideal bridge and organization, but it has to be planned for and it has to be involved right from the beginning. But I think the key is that maybe in the 90s we began to see that it was more than just a supporting role, that it played a key role in the uh, in the planning, and that it had operational level importance, and, and certainly need to be considered at that level, at the combatant commander level. Yeah. Now, you spent most of your career, you were in the Marine Corps, and, and joint force elements. The Marine Corps still has civil affairs, the Navy got out of the business. The, the bulk of the CA forces are still in the Army, with most of it in the reserve component. When you, going through your experiences looking back and now what we have today with the force structure of civil affairs, is it the right mix? Does the Marine Corps need more or less civil affairs? And, you know, for the Army balance, active duty and reserve, do you think that's right? You know, I spent my, almost my entire general officer time in, in the joint world. And even when I had a Marine Corps command, uh, it was, I was involved in joint operations primarily. And I think we have to think about it joint. You know, who are the best contributors? Obviously, the, the bulk of civil affairs will be uh, from the Army. I think it's valuable that, uh, that all the services have some civil affairs capability uh, so that they're aware, aware of it uh, and, and its capabilities and they contribute to the joint capability. I do think, though, uh, we need to think about civil affairs in terms of structure like we think uh, of, of special operations and like we think of transportation command and all that. We need a joint command that does civil affairs. I, I don't think SOCOM is the right place for civil affairs. Uh, I think civil affairs is, is important and there's a differentiation between what civil affairs does and what we do with uh, special operations. And I think the integration and the requirement and the need to interface with other agencies means that we should look at a unified or subunified command. And I think I would even go so far as if we really have people that want to think on a larger and more strategic scale, this would be the ideal basis for an interagency unified command. And civil affairs would be the backbone of that. And we structured around that. It would have componency from other 
other agencies of government like State Department, USAID, and others. It would help tremendously, I can tell you from a combatant commander's point of view, in planning, because none of those other agencies plan at all. They claim to, but they don't. I look at my deliberate war plans, and I don't see a State Department or AID or other component uh, about how we're going to manage things during the operations and in the later phases how we're going to do the transitioning. I think a classic example was Iraq. Uh, Orha and CPA were disasters. You know, we keep trying to put lipstick on that pig, but it did not go well because it was a pickup ad hoc uh, attempt at, at nation building, and you can't do business that way, even on a smaller scale. It seems like the, the last 20 years or so, maybe longer, DOD has been taking on more and more of the missions that state or USAID had been doing traditionally, and the money has been going to DOD, and that slope just can, it feeds the cycle of people saying, well, state and aid can't do it. Well, maybe they're not stepping up to the plate. Maybe they don't have the money they used to have, and DOD just continues to eat, eat more of that mission set. So... Where do we get, do you think, the turning point where state and aid continue to pick up those missions or the, the Congress decides, hey, we need to fund them adequately, otherwise, as General Mattis had mentioned, we need to buy more ammunition? Yeah. Well, I think that one of the problems we have is the other agencies of government fight this. Uh, I was involved uh, in an attempt by the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee when it was headed by Senator Luger, and the, the ranking member uh, was Senator Biden, and, and Senators Curry and a number of others were on there. And this whole business of lack of interagency coordination and planning and then execution on the ground, it really bothered them, and they formed a policy advisory group. And I, and I was on it. I retired to sort of represent the military. And, and what surprised me is, is the, the lack of uh, understanding by state and others about how extensive the planning had to be, the preparation, and the identification is, uh, of the personnel and the people and the structure and the organization you were going to need. And because I was looking at when I was a CENTCOM commander, but just on the Iraq plan, you know, where's the annex or where's the second part of the plan that tells me how we're going to transition this over? Who comes in behind the combat forces or with them uh, more appropriately uh, that begins right away restructuring the government? I did assessments after I retired in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Iraq for General Odierno and in Afghanistan for General Mattis. And I kind of uh, wandered around and looked at everything we had on the ground there. And what shocked me is seeing the, the percentage of, of organizations that were non-military that had military people doing that business. You know, I, I would uh, find the, uh, the, the anti-corruption task force, you know, headed by uh, Brigadier General H.R. McMaster's with everybody I looked around with, one exception was wearing a uniform. Yeah. The provisional reconstruction teams were 80% military, not counting security. You know, and, and you looked around and saw that we, we had no plan going into these operations uh, because nobody did the planning and we had no pre-coordination or pre-identification as to who was going to do all this. Therefore, you end up with those pickup teams with people that are coming in that have no clue, couldn't find the Middle East, you know, uh, if they tried. Uh, and and you, you end up with the, the military piece 
goes well, but the day after the Indenwat question is, is up in the air, and that's where you end up failing. Right. So I want to circle back to a recommendation you had a few minutes ago, and this relates to a section of your book, uh, which is entitled Before the First Shots Were Fired, that you've written with Tony Colts. And you cite a 2009 conference in which you recommended that civil affairs become, quote, a unified command responsible for integrating all the agency's efforts and providing the planning, administrative, and logistical support for the interagency teams on the ground, end quote. So we've already talked about some of sort of what you've seen in your career and why that might be needed. Why, what have you heard from people about that suggestion? You know, does, does anyone support it or has it been rejected or fallen on deaf ears? sort of, you know, wow, that's, you know, I got to think about that because what I'm suggesting is something unique, which is an interagency unified command as opposed to a military unified command. Secondly, that, you know, this is going to be uh, a place where you're going to have to commit to more extensive planning. Everybody and organizations that don't have planning capabilities are going to have to step up. It's going to require Congress to support it because structurally it would be unique, and it's going to require the funding to support it. I think on the military side, civil affairs is ideal as, as to, to step up to uh, be our contribution to this organization uh, and, and to help put it together. The civil affairs, obviously, being military, will bring tremendous uh, planning experience, uh, more structure, more coordination, more ability to team, you know, from the, the other uh, organizations, and they would marry up just like SOCOM or Transcom with each of the regional combatant commanders and help work to support the planning for each of their deliberate war plans or for their contingency planning when they have a deployment. It would be identified just like the, the civil affairs groups now are associated with regional commands. I think we could manage, and part of that we would contribute uh, would also be foreign area officers that have a lot of experience in the region. They could do tours, obviously, and where, what they do now, but also in a structure like that would bring valuable experience. And to me, this is what's been missing. After every operation we go on that has anything to do with, with stabilization or reconstruction, which is almost all of them, the aftermath will always say, we failed on the interagency part. You know, it, you know, it, it wasn't there. We've got to do better. Then nobody does anything. Now, to the second part of your question, when I proposed this, it, the State Department came back with a vengeance. Uh, this is a time when Hillary Clinton was the secretary, and she said, "We do planning." You know, and some professor from somewhere I don't know how he was associated with State Department wrote sort of a counter op-ed piece of why they don't need this. They had a a stability uh, uh, organization and they did planning, which is a small pickup team that did no planning. And none of those plannings were tied into the, the combatant commander planning. And, and you know, to me, this, this creates the problem and the complaint that we have that the military dominates. I remember that uh, Dana Priest, who was a reporter for the Washington Post, wrote a book called The Mission back in the 90s. And it was how the combatant commanders were becoming pro-consuls. They were the dominant representatives of U.S. interests out there. They overshadowed State Department. And uh, I think it was uh, Rumsfeld when he came in, he got rid of the title of SYNC Commander-in-Chief and 
tried to pull back some of the power. My experience, that power wasn't because military generals were trying to grab it. It's because there was a vacuum out there in these other areas. And we found ourselves in the business of economics and diplomacy and, and, and all the other aspects of power because we just don't have the wherewithal. Now, I would readily admit if they were going to step up to this, they're going to need more resources to do it. But beside the resources, there needs to be a culture change in these other organizations to understand but, you know, things like planning and, and the ability to, uh, to pre-commit to how they would engage if we go in there, just like we earmark units uh, for war planning. Right. Well, sir, I think, uh, have you seen the stability assistance review document, the SAR document that's come out from DOD, State, and USAID? No. That... Uh, I'd recommend checking that out because I think it's closer to what you've been talking about. It is not a unified command, but it does lay out how in stability operations, State Department uh, should be in the lead, USAID is doing the development work, and DOD is essentially providing the um, logistical support. The problem with that stuff is it makes no commitment. It tells you that we need to coordinate, we need to do this, we need to do that. Show me, if we had a war plan for, let's say, North Korea, which I'm sure we do, show me where, what State Department's detailed deliberate plan is for that, or USAID, and show me who is earmarked to go in to head the mission, who is the brimmer, uh, who they pull out of the air that, you know, has has not had the, you know, not, not, uh, in any way criticizing him, but he didn't have the experience and knew what was going on. He wasn't as deeply involved in the planning and understanding of the region as the combatant commander was. And you need that. I mean, one of the things I suggested to Madeleine Albright when she was Secretary of State is take your regional combatant, your, your regional bureau directors. First, let's align the geography. Our geography is different from DOD to the state. And then why not co-locate them with the combatant commanders? They're not subordinating them in any way. They would be co-equals. But every time we did something, we would do it in conjunction with the state uh, regional uh, assistant secretaries who I saw as the counterparts to the regional combatant commanders. Right. But, you know, and right now I will tell you that in my experience, and I still think it's the same since I certainly travel the region, most of the, of the people we interact with out in the regions see the combatant commander as, as, as more powerful, more stronger, more representing a government interest than the assistant secretary that has regional responsibility. I doubt they could even identify him, you know. Yeah. But they knew that General Mattis is and that General Petraeus is and, you know, those people. Exactly. Folks, you've been listening to an interview with General Anthony Zinni. When we come back, we'll talk about the force structure of civil affairs, tools for phases of war, and um, get into the Global Fragility Act. We'll be right back. Join civil affairs leaders as they discuss integrating civil affairs at the CA Symposium on Friday and Saturday, 18-19 October at the Hilton Downtown Tampa in Tampa, Florida. Civil affairs integration surfaced as the forefront issue for the future development of the regiment at the conclusion of the last roundtable. 
In order for civil affairs to become a better army and joint force for integration across multiple domains in the human geography, the regiment must first better integrate itself, then with those it works by, with, for, and through. The symposium will begin with three workshops and a banquet dinner that Friday, then address the questions laid out in the call for papers, which closed in August. To register for the symposium, visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. Back to the 1CA podcast, our interview with General Anthony Zinning. Sir, I wanted to ask you about the force structure that we have in civil affairs. And you mentioned that you think that civil affairs should not be under SOCOM. And, and right now we have active duty CA forces that tend to support special operations forces, SOC, and reserve CA units in the Army and Marine Corps, which tend to support what we call more conventional forces. So with this shift that we have going on right now to joint operations, multi-domain operations. How do you see civil affairs fitting into the future of U.S. warfare? That's a big picture question. Yeah. Well, uh, I see it from a military point of view, much like special operations is organized now. In other words, each of the combat, regional combatant commanders has a, a joint special operations command uh, in it which uh, connects, obviously, not only to the regional combatant commander, but back to SOCOM. And so I think for civil affairs would be the same way. We would have dedicated staff personnel, and there would be, much like there is now, there would be units in civil affairs that have the regional expertise and and would be assigned to uh, the specific regional commanders much like what we do with the special forces groups now. You know, there's a group assigned to to each of the combatant commanders that basically uh, is very familiar with the region, works, uh, you know, in in the region and uh, uh, on on training and and all all the requirements for special operations. But uh, I would see the same relationship. Uh, I think the unified commands, the, the civil affairs unified command or the interagency unified command, the civil affairs Part of that would certainly continue this relationship with the specific groups assigned to regions, and I think that would help inform the other components too from the other agencies of government. Yeah, uh, we would work with you. We would continue to work. And like I said, uh, one of the things I really felt strongly about was increasing the career opportunities for not only civil affairs officers but also foreign area officers. And I see the foreign area officer career path being integrated into this too where a lot of our uh, security assistance people, our attachés, those that work with our political advisors, would also help man, along with civil affairs uh, personnel, this command too. And so what you have is very specific regional expertise in these areas. And we develop within the military, you know, the the same kind of uh, career path uh, and and association with uh, our foreign service uh, people and others in the other agencies of government that have that expertise. Exactly. It's the people understand the politics and the economics and the culture can speak those languages, hopefully, but enough of the background where uh, they can tie into the other tools of government because our adversaries are certainly doing it right now in terms of influence operations and information operations. Sir, I wanted to ask you about the phases of war and connection to civil affairs. Do you think that civil affairs would be an important tool throughout phases of war, 
or should CA forces primarily focus on shaping the environment, uh, maybe stability, uh, consolidating gains, or if it's the latter, then how should CA forces contribute best in today's environment where we have our adversaries competing, you know, in, in places that are less than armed conflict? I, I think you need civil affairs involvement throughout the phases, even in, you know, obviously from the planning all the way through to the transition and to the reconstruction and the, and the stabilization process and recovery process or whatever. This goes for not only wartime, you know, and we think in a conventional sense, but it also goes to humanitarian operations, disaster relief, and a number of other uh, areas too. Obviously, uh, things at the lower end of the scale where maybe there's certainly a security requirement, but the needs to reconstruct and to stabilize and to help fail their incapable uh, states. And, and I think, you know, I, I'm very resistant to, to thinking in terms of phasing. I, you know, I know that's the way we plan and that's the way we do business, but it belies the nature of conflict because you can go in at a moment when it looks like the combat operations are going to dominate and very quickly it turns over to really what we're doing in terms of reconstruction and what we're doing in terms of stabilization or dealing with humanitarian problems dominates and then you could swing back to combat. So it doesn't go in a logical way where, uh, you know, that, that, that some sort of straight line, easy to grab a situation where you go from major combat to, to full stability. The nature of, of conflict just doesn't work that way. So the kinds of contributions that are made by civil affairs, you know, is important throughout the operation. And I would say, you know, what I'm suggesting is civil affairs has always contributed greatly since their creation on the, at the tactical level. I think really in, in the 90s, they really moved up and contributed greatly and we're seeing more need for them at the operational level. I'm suggesting we now add the strategic level, you know, in, in, in this so that uh, the things we do in, in, in nation building or reconstruction or stabilization of governments and and this sort of thing, which is going to become a bigger requirement because we are in the midst of a global diaspora. There are people fleeing places because uh, the places they're coming from are not sustainable, either because of extremism or, or environmental degradation or humanitarian problems or whatever. And we're going to find ourselves more that, that you know, you're going to, you, you can't just seal the borders and beat people back. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's just unacceptable and it's just impossible. And you're going to find yourself having to go to these places and create the kind of stability that allows people to have a sustainable existence in these uh, environments. And, you know, when people start talking about cost, it's more expensive to not do it. You know, we wasted so many resources in Iraq because we had a crappy plan. We went in with too few troops. We didn't understand the environment. We didn't have an organization that went in that could uh, help to make this a smooth transition. And as a result, the expense in resources was phenomenal. The delays it took, the instability that still exists in places like Iraq and Afghanistan because of our lack of commitment up front, you know, I think demonstrates the need for this and how it would be more efficient if you invested in it now and, and when you can structure it. Yeah, well, our, that is not our focus today. I mean, our focus in great power competition has been lethality, 
big ticket items that cost a lot of money and less focus on investing in the civil affairs, PSYOP, information operations type capabilities. Why do you think, you know, is, is this tied, you've also um, talked about the, the need to overhaul the entire military industrial complex. Why would you say that? What are your suggestions and, and what do you think is a way forward for CA to get a voice in this today's world where we have an emphasis on lethality and um, hardware? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. We understand how to do the high-end stuff. The high-end stuff means you're worried about uh, sort of nation-state conflict uh, where, you know, the threat could be existential and it gets more attention. Uh, and the technology, obviously, is, is, is very expensive in the commitment. And that'll be out there as long as we have those kinds of threats. But what's killing us in terms of, uh, of nipping at our ankles and creating all the problems we have are this other stuff that goes on uh, that isn't high-end. You know, uh, a lot of this has involved contracting in a different way. We understand how to do contracting to buy airplanes, tanks, and ships and all. Uh, we still haven't sorted out the kinds of contracting we, you know, we saw explode throughout the 90s and uh, into the 2000s. Uh, you know, whether what things should be contracted, what shouldn't, how many organizations can contribute. We've seen an explosion in the number of NGOs. We don't know how to operate and coordinate with them. I, there's actually, I think, almost an adversarial relationship in some cases with the military and the NGOs, uh, in, which we need to repair. We don't work well with the United Nations and other international organizations uh, to a large extent and uh, with a lot of volunteer organizations. And we don't help host nations that either want to contribute as allies and, and participate or nations that have the problems internally to be able to work on it when the problems are manageable. And, I, you know, to me, this goes beyond just the military contribution. I, you know, I've spent a lot of portion of my life doing uh, peace mediation work on an international scene. I've done over 10 of them. We don't invest in professional mediators and education and negotiators. and uh, We don't know how to do that. We don't know how to do the implementation phases, you know, which involves military and security forces and uh, adjudication capability uh, uh, for disputes and that sort of thing. You know, there's a whole art out there that we pay no attention to. Involve military people. As a matter of fact, military people get deeply involved in that because they're committed. Just go to the Sinai and see how many years we've had the MFO out there, multinational yeah. force. You know, and, and we get tied down into these things because you know people don't know how to structure the right implementation and security forces and plan. You know, it, it, you know, we we buy into something for the long term that uh, you know ties down our forces, and and that is expensive. Yeah, this gets to um, Sean McFate, who teaches at the National Defense University, has written several books, including The New Rules of War, and one of his rules talks about how um, mercenaries are here to stay. So during your time in uniform, did you see the rise of mercenaries? And you talk about the people who should be in uniform, you know, doing the civil affairs type work, who's on the battlefield with the other NGOs. You know, we have more people now, I think, who are not in uniform uh, representing U.S. interests in Afghanistan than, than those who are in uniform, more contractors, I believe, than, than uniform personnel. So if, if the world will become, if conflicts will have more and more people of different stripes on the battlefield, it, it makes it complicated for civil affairs forces or a commander in your position to know who's who in the zoo. Where do you think that is headed? 
Do you think that mercenaries are here to stay? And, and do you think that's something that civil affairs should be aware of, whether it's pro or against U.S. interests? I think right now the mood in Congress, because of our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan with the uh, contracted security forces, is they're going to rethink that whole thing. And, and probably that might be a role that will stay with the military. Uh, and will not be contracted in the future. It, there was a move afoot in Congress to legislate against contracting that. But we have to be careful we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here because, you know, you know people uh, look at some of the contracting thing, the services that are provided, and ask, well, why can't we do that in the military? Well, you could, but it's more expensive. You know, for example, if let's say you're going to deploy a detachment of helicopters somewhere, if you have to take a maintenance capability out of your maintenance unit, uh, you know, it's not like you take a proportionate share based on the number of helicopters. You may have to take certain capabilities that diminish taking care of the majority of, of uh, helicopters. So if there's a contractor out there that says, look, I hire, you know, retired uh, master sergeants that work on helicopters and we could provide this detachment uh, for them period of time you need it at less cost than it would be to move everybody over. And some of the capabilities just take catering and things like that. Why do you need to bring in military people who you invest in their training, their benefits and everything else to be cooks when you can hire a contractor that does the catering for the time you need them and then goes away? Uh, we're even seeing that level of contracting on U.S. bases. You know, uh, we've got to rethink what makes sense what saves the taxpayer money, what can be depended upon to be there when you need it, and what things, because of the nature of what they do, like these security forces uh, that have gotten themselves, in some cases, bad reputation, and unfortunately tainted others who were doing a good job. There's other areas like police training that uh, you know have been problematic uh, because we, we were doing it for the first time and trying to understand how to do it, and that whole contracting business has to be rethought, especially contracts that were let out of uh, State Department and other places that didn't have experience in contracting. DOD has a lot of experience in contracting. Right. Knows how to write contracts, knows how to write requirements out there. Uh, when you get agencies that have never had that experience, then uh, you know the contracting it, it gets screwed up, and both the contractor and the contractee end up running into uh, problems because the contracts are poorly written and poorly, uh, the oversight is poor in terms of uh, how it's monitored, uh, how subcontractors are brought in, locals are hired, what the local requirements are. We need to rethink that whole business because we're going to see more and more of that. And, and I've seen it from both sides. I mean, I've been on boards of companies that provided contracted services and, and you know, sometimes it's difficult to explain you know, why it's more efficient. Sometimes it's difficult to deal with people that don't know how to write a contract and get to all sorts of problems down the road. It's something that if it's going to stay in the future, and it needs to because of its efficiency, we need to have more governmental control. That's the other thing I would say about something like this uh, civil affairs or this unified command. A lot of that contracting could be done there using DOD contracting and not getting other agencies of government that aren't used to significant contracting uh, requirements and, and more complicated uh, contracting requirements. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, sir, I wanted to shift focus to the Global Fragility Act. 
you and Jake Harriman wrote an opinion piece published by Fox News and argues for a congressional passage of the Global Fragility Act proposal that would require state, USAID, Department of Defense, and NGOs to come together and develop a strategy, a joint strategy for reducing and preventing violent conflict in fragile states. That list continues to grow. Would you say that this proposal indicates these parts of the government don't currently have a strategy for engagement with fragile states? And how would this Global Fragility Act, this proposal, improve upon whatever we've tried before? conversation without asking you about your nickname and where the godfather came from can you tell that story Pennsylvania, now in Virginia. Uh, sir, you had a, a wonderful career in the U.S. Marine Corps. You were Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Central Command. You were also a Special Envoy for Middle East Peace as our point of contact with Israel and the Palestinian Authority and a Champion of Civil Affairs. I thank you very much for being on the 1CA Podcast. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.